Help! It's what's for dinner. Well, maybe not just yet. But with guys like Bo Perry and the team over at Blue Evolution, Kelp just might be coming to a store near you sooner than you think. My name is Captain Zach, and in this week's episode of Along the Keel, we speak with Bo Perry, the founder of Blue Evolution. Bo has been at the forefront of kelp farming here in the U.S. and abroad for quite some time with the hopes of making kelp a staple in every U.S. household by incorporating it into a variety of different products that we already know and love, like popcorn and pasta. And by the way, as an Italian guy, I can tell you that they're already pretty damn good. The company is steeped in innovation, and Bo is constantly cooking up new ways to grow, consume, and market his surprisingly delicious seaweed. Don't forget to stick around for the end of the show, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Along the Keel. Bo, what's your background? Like, how do you even get into creating a sustainable source, you know, food? How does that, how does that work? Well, um, I'm from California, uh, grew up here and, um, both on my mom and dad's side, there's just a real love for the ocean. Um, and I was raised on the beach and around the coast and, um, just a lot of my life, uh, as early as I can remember revolved around the sea. So, um, I, Went to business school much later, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, around graduated in 2008. And I went to a sustainability program here in San Francisco where I live called the Presidio School. Okay. And it was all about sustainability. And um, I was interested in a career in the ocean, um, you know, any excuse really to be, you know, near surfing and fishing and just a view of the, of the sea. Um, right. So a colleague of mine started a fish farm down in Mexico, down in Baja, uh, somewhat near Cabo. And I had spent a lot of time down there fishing and surfing, really just for fun. But I knew a lot of people there. I knew the landscape. I spoke Spanish. So I helped him um, establish that business um, and ended up working in aquaculture and was really interested in sort of the promise of aquaculture is this great way to source um, a lot of the focus has been on protein from the ocean. Right. Um, and, you know, aquaculture has been around for a long time. I mean, really hundreds of years, the Hawaiians were doing it, you know, back in uh, sort of a, set, a millennium ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, and in the modern form, you know, it took off uh, in the latter half of the last century. And it, did, it's, it, it was very successful, obviously, in terms of profitability, but a lot of the sort of warranties on ecological uh, uh, impact and social equity, just, you know, we, it wasn't performing as a, as a sector. So I was really interested in trying to uh, upgrade uh, these business models. And I was diving uh, on these huge spheres um, out in the middle of the Gulf of California, um, growing fish and shrimp and, um, you know, scrubbing cages, basically. And, yeah. Uh, uh, really getting into the, what it takes to grow things in the ocean. It's extremely dangerous and yeah, um, very risky from from a business standpoint. And um, I, I started to really get turned on to seaweed at one point. Um, first of all, I just couldn't get rid of the stuff when I was trying to grow these these fauna, you know, animals. Right now, what kind of what kind of species were you growing down there? 
I really focused a lot on shrimp. Uh, okay. I was trying to do shrimp in the op- open ocean, which is a little bit crazy. Uh, but shrimp farming is obviously a really problematic business model, you know, generally speaking. I think there's some good examples out there, but the bulk of farm shrimp really involves um, destruction of some really sensitive coastal habitat. And it's just a huge industry physically and, and sales-wise. Right. Um, so we were trying to shift that out into the ocean. Uh, we also worked with some local uh, fish species, and we were trying to basically, instead of saying, okay, everybody wants tuna, so let's figure out how to grow tuna, which doesn't really want to be grown in cages. Right. Um, let's find a species that's sort of biologically evolved in a way that is uh, conducive to uh, tank uh, or uh, cage aquaculture. Uh, so we worked with a, a Pacific species of pompano. Interesting. Really delicious fish, and, and they just they school tightly. So if you put them in a cage where they're all packed together, unlike tuna, they're perfectly happy, and their immune system doesn't get stressed out because they're too close to a bunch of their brethren. Right, right. And it's funny, you know, when you mentioned the orbs in the, or I guess that, or the floating cages, you, I guess you call them. Um, when I was out in Hawaii working as a charter captain, part of one of the excursions that we did would be to take people out to the fish farm. And on the big island of Hawaii, there's, I think, four... Currently, there's four uh, big cages, and they're growing compache out there. And that was my – have you heard of it? Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, Neil Sims. Um, that was really the inspiration. Actually, my friend in the, in the business program, he took a vacation to Hawaii uh, and did a tour, maybe on your boat. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, small world, right? Yeah, and, I, you know, I think what Neil has done is interesting, but making, you know – Fish aquaculture sustainable is a big project, so um, and the market, suffice to say, is huge. So, right, uh, my, my, my friend just said, Man, I want to do that, and Mexico is, is a great place to do that. Um, so, so he, he came back from it was a Christmas break, and he came back with a be in his bonnet to, to start a fish farm. That's so funny. And the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> say. But it was it was there in Kona right off the airport that um I think he had his moment of inspiration and, and I caught on quickly. Yeah. And then with seaweed, you know, um I I had actually started a nonprofit to work alongside his business and it was all about trying to help these coastal uh communities um benefit from aquaculture uh, in 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 Mexico, in Baja mm-hmm. you have most people in the remote areas are are fishing communities they they live in fishing communities and right aquaculture has be, be, become a pretty big industry in the region usually there's a negative a real negative uh impact of a big fish farm being set up near a fishing community uh they compete for the space mm-hmm. of the ocean um i've actually been in some sort of physical confrontations over aquaculture operators and, and, and fishing captains. I believe uh, that. Over, over like, hey, I've been fishing there for 30 years, and, you know, my father and his grandfather, right, you, you tell me I can't enter your 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 farm area. Right, right. Um, yeah. And they're competing in the marketplace, and there are ecological impacts that come home to roost primarily for those for those. Um, those people who depend on the wild uh, ecosystem for for their harvest, um, 
and those people had been beaten up sort of in several ways. Their their fisheries are all in, in serious decline by and large. And um, they're also, so the, the country of Mexico basically began to limit um, uh, take. Mm. Uh, so the fisheries are healthy, but the communities that depend on them, they have a capped uh, uh you know, catch essentially. Right. Uh, so the fish may do well and the fishery may survive, but, um, you know, at the expense of a, of a community. Right. Right. So could aquaculture, if that's the next phase of sort of seafood production, um, it actually be turned into a benefit. And what I found was, look, it's going to be tough. These, a fish farm is like, you're going to have to spend at least $10 million. You need a hatchery, it's a phenomenally complex and uh, sophisticated uh, operation. It's not really conducive to taking into a, a, a barely a village of 300 people and saying, all right, who am I going to hire as the general manager? <laughs> right. Diver? You know, like, right. It's just not a good transition model. But seaweed um, is, is, not, is not such a high barrier to entry. It's not nearly as as complex, uh, generally speaking. Um, so I ran into, uh, Charlie Yarish. Uh, okay. Down in uh, Connecticut, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's there in, uh, Stanford and, uh, Charlie was sort of an evangelist for, uh, kelp farming mostly, but seaweed farming in general. Mm -hmm. And we're just not a seaweed farming country or we haven't been up till very recently in right. the United States. And he's been, sort of shouting from the rooftops, hey, we should be good at this. We have all this beautiful ocean territory. Uh, we're good at, you know, producing food. We're, we're great at fishing. Mm -hmm. uh, maritime industries, we are starting to eat a bunch of seaweed as uh, a population. So why don't we grow this stuff here? Uh, <laughs> right. Um, for crying out loud. So Charlie really uh, caught my ear and... Um, that was my moment of inspiration. I initially was working with him just on a project to teach high schoolers about aquaculture in a very poor neighborhood in La Paz, which mm -hmm. is the capital of, of Baja Sur. And um, working with these communities that had been uh, fishing communities in these mangrove areas that had gotten paved over, and then uh, they had lost their livelihoods. They had become sort of really blighted uh, uh, communities uh, along the waterfront there in, in La Paz. So I was working with the high school kids there on aquaculture. Well, what's the best primer to learn how to grow something? Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of that basic uh, husbandry or, or care um, uh, uh, that is required for cultivation, kind of great life skill stuff for like an after school uh, technical uh, sort of like shop, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> With tanks and pipes and filters and shop on steroids. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this was great. It was a way to reconnect this uh, cohort of high school kids with that marine uh, ecosystem that they had had. You know, maybe before it got developed in say the sixties. Right. Um, and they've sort of been cut off from the ocean in a lot of ways. Um, so here's aquaculture. Let's learn just the basic skills of water quality management, um, what the biological life cycle is, and seaweed's a really great entree into the sort of subject. So it was kind of like a stepping stone for me initially. But after meeting with Charlie and, and sort of exploring what the market 
forecast was for seaweed i said mm. this is actually this is the dark horse right this is the this is the one that nobody's thinking of right. in this part of the world that actually it, it's a long road to hoe. Uh, we have fish farming, even in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Mexico, there's a lot, but seaweed, I mean, we're starting from scratch. There's some good scientists who've been looking at the wild uh, biomass, but nobody's really growing it in this part of the world. So I just, I love that challenge. And from a sustainability standpoint and the, the sort of, um, the reach of seaweed, it, its potential to be adopted in smaller rural communities, um, it all of a sudden it all kind of snapped into place for me. Right. Um, and I, I decided, I, hey, look, why am I doing this nonprofit thing uh, and, and sort of you know drafting off of this this business? I should do seaweed, and I should do it as a business. And instead of trying to convince an industry that they need to, you know. Uh, designed for good ecological and social outcomes. I just got to do it myself. Right. And so back in 2013, I started Blue Evolution and uh, basically started with some some researchers, some phycologists, seaweed experts, saying, "How do you think?" Because they don't know mm-hmm. how to grow this commercially. And um, a lot of my early work for the company was driving around uh, some very rocky roads out in Baja and to the coast. And and I learned pretty quickly that La Paz was a terrible place to grow seaweed. In, in <laughs> Why is that? Uh, well, it's because it's in the Gulf of California, okay. which is a re- really unique uh, body of water. It, 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 it has a huge temperature range, even in, in La Paz, which is pretty close to Cabo. Um, in the summer, the, it's, the water will be in the 80s, high 80s, like mm-hmm. the bathtub. And then in the winter, you get these north winds. It's extremely deep. Uh, the, it's a, it's a, a fault line, essentially, a continuation of a fault that goes up into California. And uh, that that canyon essentially turns over, and you get freezing water. I mean, I dove in it in in the in the chilly spring, windy months, uh, and it's 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 not much warmer than here in San Francisco, right. especially when you get down about ten feet or twenty feet. Yeah, it's not like so, diving in Hawaii, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no. Um, so that range of temperature. And it's also very variable year to year. So Mm. if you have an El Nino, that blob of warm water that comes across the Pacific and hits uh, the Americas, hits, um, you know, usually around Ecuador, it comes up the coast of Central America and and Southern Mexico, Mm -hmm. and it just fills that Gulf of California. So if you're trying to predict the season of crops, I think it's really a challenge for fish as well. That variability, it could be 30 degrees, right? right. So if, you, if one year you're saying, okay, it's going to be a 30-degree swing, and even if that works for your crop, I mean, that, that's, just, that's just difficult from a, a seaweed biology standpoint. Right. Um, the lack of consistency. Have, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's dramatic throughout the year and then year to year. I mean, right. in an El Nino year, it doesn't get cold. So if you're using a species that's on the low end of the temperature range for that area, and it gets warm, you're not, you're going to have like a fraction of the productivity that, that uh, you would in a normal year. Right. So even, so we moved over to the Pacific coast up to Ensenada. Okay. Which is, which is a lot better 
in terms of water uh, temperature consistency, and it's just cooler. It has a, a pretty solid upwelling phenomenon. But even there, trying to grow uh, offshore in the ocean, we found um, that El, the El Nino's got more frequent. frequent. You know, between 2013 and now, we've had a couple, we've had a bunch of really weird years. Mm. So we were doing pilots out in the ocean. We got two El Ninos maybe with one year in between, a very tight <laughs> compression of that event. Yeah. And it was, you know, sort of analyzing the results and extrapolating into the future. It was, it was, it's difficult to envision um, a, a consistent uh, production offshore, even in sort of the cool, temperate waters of Ensenada um, with with that El Nino and temperature variability. I think it can be done. It's just we're going to need to get fancy. We're going right. to need some sort of 21st century <laughs> tricks uh, to manage for that. I think we can get there. But, you know, we're growing in a more sort of the 20th century model of long line, you know, growing seaweed on on lines in the water mm -hmm. it's a fairly basic system and you know you're you're subject to what nature gives you and right. um we've got some skunks works to try and yeah um, just manipulate you know current and whatever to to keep the seaweed in its happy zone mm -hmm. uh, even out in, the, in an open system like the ocean but that's going to take that's going to take some doing it's an important thread because if you're looking at water temperature variability pretty much anywhere on earth you, and you want to grow in the ocean you're going to temperature is a huge factor for growth and, and health of the plant so um if nature is going to give you what it gives you how can you work within that sort of baseline you can still manage temperature mm -hmm. um but you're going to need you know like a, an upweller essentially to right. get that deeper cooler water uh, uh, sort of irrigating your farm. Right. You know, I think it's interesting is how the ocean, and I, and I say this often in, in a lot of the shows, is it's the great equalizer, right? And, and it, it forces you to work in the constraints that it provides. And, and it sounds like that's exactly what you have to deal with when it comes to growing kelp or, or seaweed. What is it? What, what species of seaweed, so just so that we're on the same page, are you specifically growing? Or is it a variety? In Mexico, offshore, I was looking at um, a type of arame, which is mm -hmm. a senia. It's like a sea palm, we would call it out here. It kind of has a big, short stipe and then fronds that uh, come off of, of the top of the stipe, like a little palm tree. It looks mm -hmm. like, uh, really good flavor, nice product. That one would be a great species to grow but again that one's really an it's a kelp so it, it's better grown offshore um what we settled on for mexico was actually an onshore farm so we have a farm about an hour and a half south of ensenada uh where we have an intake that we built ourselves <laughs> uh, no no way <laughs> yeah it's out in the, i mean it's open ocean like you're, a place with like you're getting fancy that's for sure <laughs> it gets 30 foot swells in in on a big uh north pacific uh storm right um but that goes into tanks that are up on a small bluff uh there's sort of an apron there and we have uh we have tank cultivation there of uh sea lettuce which is a green seaweed i'm sure if you go down to the water at low tide you'll see these little green sheets essentially they, they look like leaves yep um, absolutely you got to be careful where you're 
getting your ulva from. It certainly likes, um, you know, uh, nitrogen, so it grows really well around anywhere with fertilizer or sewage runoff. Um, but we grow it. We've sited ourselves way out in the middle of nowhere uh, to grow it with this really clean sort of remote coastal uh, watershed that, that we're in. But I got to say, though, we have two other species that we grow up in Alaska. Okay. So there's a second chapter wow. here. I'm growing All in right. Mexico. <laughs> I, I want to do this offshore thing and really invite communities to own their own farms and grow seaweed offshore. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's a very, that could be very widely distributed if, if the ocean were you know, uh, amenable to it, but, um, that's going to have to wait. So we end up with this onshore farm. It is a coastal community. It is a fishing community. We are employing people from that community, especially young people and training them up. We've even sent, uh, at least one person to college to study Mm -hmm. biology with a specialty in in seaweed cultivation. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, And this is a guy who hadn't finished high school. So he came to work for us, uh, the professor at the state university who we work with um, said, "Hey, this guy's got, you know, real a uh, real knack for this. Let's get him his sort of GED and get him into my program." And uh, so we we supported his sort of apprenticeship on the farm while he was going to the university, and and, and we're getting that that social impact, not the way I pictured it. Uh, Mexico, mm. but it, it's it's a really it's scalable, and I think the market's there, and I think it can have a big positive effect. In in you know you hit reality, and it's like oh well I, I've hit a barrier here. I can't do this offshore sort of distributed network of farms. I can still right. design an onshore business to to deliver some real social equity and have a pretty pivotal impact on the regional economy if if it gets big. So that works. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, another business school colleague was working up in Alaska. I think he was working on energy efficiency project. And he said, you know, you should really come up here and look at the, this uh, this area. I said, boy, that's pretty crazy. Alaska's way out there. I've never been. And I sort of started thinking about it and researching, you know, the Alaska seaweeds and all that. It was like, wow, man, I, I, I think Alaska may have may have legs for, for seaweed. So I started going up there. I started kicking around, meeting the seaweed scientists who you can count on one hand. And um, they had worked, they had always, these seaweed scientists have always had a dream of <laughs> going commercial. Like they're studying these things in the mm-hmm. wild and in North America, they're like, man, Somebody, you know, all their research, you know, most of seaweed research is happening in Korea and Japan and China, Philippines, Indonesia. And they keep saying, well, you know, come and like Charlie Irish, come and let's get some entrepreneurs around the science that we're doing. And so we we started looking at uh, kelps there, which grow in sort of epic abundance. And we settled on sugar kelp and what they call ribbed or winged kelp. We also work with bull kelp and a few other species. Um, and, you know, Alaska, we had a lot of challenges and learned sort of trial and error, but it turns out Alaska is a great place to grow seaweed. Juneau isn't the best place, so we kicked around a Sitka and Homer and Ketchikan and Kodiak, which is way out there, even by Alaska standards. And Kodiak, in the end, had sort of 
the nexus of all the factors that we had learned over over years of sort of R and D and commercial planning. That 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 was a great hub, uh, despite its remoteness for. Uh, seaweed farming. So we, we set up a hatchery at the NOAA lab there and we went about recruiting uh, farmers. And there you have a real fishing economy. I think it's the second or third biggest fisheries landing port in the U.S. Uh, but it's in decline. Again, the state and the feds are really managing those fisheries well, um, you know, mm-hmm. all, all things considered. But the net effect is that you can't earn your way up to a cap. You're owning your own boat and being a captain anymore. And they were really excited about seaweed because they could apply for their own permit and they could be the captain of that seafood production business. So what we set right. up was a model where we we have a hatchery, we sell seed to these guys, and then we buy back their harvest. Interesting. Um, and we, you know, these are guys. I mean, they they told me unsolicited. We were really planning to leave Kodiak. I think the population has gone from six thousand to five thousand over the last de- wow. decade, give or take. Yeah, businesses shutting, mm. plants closing down. You know, people. It's just an economic. It's a very hard place to live. So if you're not making good money, you're not going to last very long. Uh, but they said right. the reason that they're staying is because of this seaweed thing. Now that's a serious. <laughs> puts a lot on our shoulders to deliver and make this happen, but they have taken it and run with it. Sort of going back to, gosh, 2008, what was this vision for aquaculture to be uh, a segue from these fisheries into a new growth you know, enterprise that, that really could be huge um, mm-hmm. and can has a role for these captains, right? These local family-owned right. businesses to produce in a very sophisticated and advanced way, but more as a network of distributed ownership. Um, and I think, I mm-hmm. think, you know, for your listeners, it's like, if you love the ocean, that, in, that infers a healthy respect for anybody who lives on the ocean. I mean, there are people who love the ocean, then there are people who depend on it. And Mm -hmm. uh, to see sort of, you know, it's a livelihood, not just a job. And it's not, it's a business, right? They own it. They're not just clocking in or getting a salary. Um, Right. That's a big deal for, for, for the fishing uh, community up in Alaska. And it's not going to work everywhere. um, But, we see with these guys and a whole cohort of other farmers that are in the pipeline and, and doing small sort of pilot uh, uh, grow outs on their, on their uh, sites. There's real potential here to, to get people the livelihood to create a culture, a, a business culture and a community culture around seaweed farming. Like, you know, a, a seaweed festival in Kodiak. A few more years, and that that's going to be a thing. You know, like after harvest, right. we're going <laughs> to a bunch of seaweed products. The, the the local brewery makes a beer with our sugar kelp, so that will flow. But you know, that fishing obviously has the culture. Fishing is people don't fish just to make money. They love the fishing. <laughs> uh, right. What do they do on their day off? Very true. You know, they go fishing. <laughs> And, you know, I yeah. see that in Mexico and I see that in Alaska. So um, uh, seaweed has really caught that 
uh, has begun to occupy that role for a growing number of people uh, in Kodiak, in Ketchikan, and boy, I mean, the demand to grow seaweed it way surpasses my ability to sell it, frankly, at this point. But that can change very quickly. Um, and I'll just say, really, what I think is the the leading effort to grow commercially, you know, the, the R&D effort to grow commercially in the country, and it's way out in the middle of Kodiak, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in Kodiak, um, and that's beautiful to me. I mean, it's a subsidy. Yes, it's a federal grant, but, um, I, you know, that's the way aquaculture has become so successful in so many other parts of the world is public-private partnerships that are well-designed, and it's a good investment. I mean, I, 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 these guys are already adopting mm. a lot of the innovations that are right. really, you know, ostensibly <laughs> of course it is. producing like an Iowa-sized amount of, of sugar kelp for biofuel. But they're they're pulling that into their current operations and growing their seaweed a lot better than they were two years ago before this project really got started. Um, so that's just beautiful, you know. I got I got the leading scientists in the hemisphere advising um, sort of the what I hope becomes the archetype for a family, a local family-owned farm. That's, <laughs> right. that's a big bridge. Like I'm I'm pretty proud of stitching in this right. funding to their efforts as small family-owned businesses to really leapfrog or quantum leap their way to becoming really good at this and and sort of showing the way for this uh this continent to become a leader which i don't think that's an ambitious goal but it's not it's not impossible it's very doable but it's going to require these kinds of Mm. bridges between people in remote areas who know nothing about seaweed firing and these sort of wonks who know everything under the sun, but just not how to boil it down to something viable and, you know, physical and practical and operation instead of a concept. Right. Um, and, and that's been really fruitful. And I think that, yeah. um, that's a real catalyst where we can shoot for these environmental goals. We can shoot for these community, uh, this sort of, uh, uh, watershed shifts in in these coastal communities. Uh, we just have to we just have to do it early, right? We have to bake that into the DNA. And I feel like this connection between these amazing institutions and thinkers and the the, the guys on the water who are also I mean, you talk about Yankee ingenuity, you know, like the ability to people who are just hungry, like give me a problem. Fishermen are that way. They're dealing with that in fishing all the time. You think fishing is static? No. Every year they're trying out new gear and, and you know, a different winch setup. <laughs> or a new regulation comes along and they have to adapt. And, you know, there's just so much There's so much that, you know, and it's really cool to listen to your story and how you're going about approaching this problem. And to be able to really boil it down and bring it to, all right, let's just let the fishermen figure it out because these are the people that are, are on the water day in and day out in some of the most austere environments in the world. And, you know, no, you know, I, there was a, a guest on the podcast. His name is Taylor Strout. He, he's the owner of Rugged Seas and he is a, an Alaskan uh, fisherman. And, you know, those guys have some of the most gritty, like down to earth jobs you can get. So to be able to 
put this concept in their hands and be like, all right, let's see what this can do is a true testament, not only to your model and how it can be replicated in the future, but also to the testament of the, you know, like you said, Yankee ingenuity that a fisherman has. Yeah. I I mean, it would be a fool's errand for me to try to do what they do. You know, the, Mm. the local knowledge is just, uh, irreplaceable in terms of you know going from how do we do this to i'm really good at it um so right you know there's an upside for me apart from the feel-good story of working with local fishing um uh fishing community uh uh entrepreneurs um but there's a very practical reason for me to do that too which is to say um look there's there's a movement towards a real big corporate monocrop uh uh vision for for seaweed farming or 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 let's just say the conditions are in place where it would trend in that direction um the seafood processors are very interested in in that um in seaweed as as an opportunity um but as in fisheries that's problematic because really it, it leaves these remote fishing communities um vulnerable right if the if the market's not good they're going to get like this year salmon was like i saw five cents a pound wow five cents a pound i saw an email it wasn't addressed to me but that's what uh one of the farmers said i was like that's insane (laughs) the five and the zero anyway the prices are yeah right right. and there's not much people can do about it because they're they're, Mm -hmm. they're in um you know they're, they're just they have to take what the market gives them. I think in this case, right. and again, they, they don't own anything. They don't own a quota. They don't own a boat, a big boat necessarily. So um, mm-hmm. they don't have assets that they can lean back on in, in tough years. Um, so it, it, I like. I think that these farmers working, and I'll say, quote unquote, a small farm or a small a, a small holder farm network um is mm-hmm. they, they can actually those farms can be big i mean these family farms are like 30 to 80 acres and you can produce a lot mm-hmm. of seed on that so each quote unquote small farmer is actually a significant supplier but they all do right. things slightly differently and getting them to work together in innovation is tough you know i figure out how to grow good seaweed i don't want to share it with my my competitors but actually while that impulse is understandable all of the aquaculture i've seen that's successful there's a lot of industry organization right around like biosecurity your shrimp farming if people aren't talking to each other and there's a disease outbreak it's a mess if people are honest and there are ways to say hey that farm has a virus and we're going to quarantine it and all that stuff um, you know, Thailand is way better at dealing with disease than Mexico because Mexico's shrimp farming industry isn't very well organized. Well, up in Alaska, mm. I would like to see lots of uh, uh, locally owned farms working in some degree of cooperation. Um, that's not like a socialist communist thing, but if 20 different farmers each has one good idea and they all put that into the pot, and then they all take out 20 good or 19 other good ideas. Uh, that's a virtuous enterprise uh, uh, interaction, right? Like th- you can evolve much more quickly as opposed to one company owning a thousand acres 
and, and, and doing it one way, essentially, maybe with some R&D on the side, we really create a, a substrate for sort of open sourcing this. Now, the extent to which that happens is sort of a social engineering challenge, right? Um, but, you know, like this DOE project, um, you can set the sort of culture around innovation in a way where you get a positive sum, right? Where, yes, you're sharing information, but you're getting a lot more back than you put in. Um, and, and, and you need coordination in terms of production. You know, the market needs to be understood and, and designed for in your production. So, um, uh, right. everybody needs to, you know, right now, everybody wants to grow seaweed in Alaska, grow, grow, grow. It's like, okay, but I need to bring online production as I see market develop for me. And I'm sure there'll be other buyers, but mm-hmm. You know, I can get into the marketing side of this business, uh, which we haven't really touched on. That needs to be balanced with production. I mean, supply and demand. Right. If we can get lots of family farms in Alaska working with great researchers and Blue Evolution is sort of the clearinghouse for not just seaweed, but the the know-how of how to grow it, um, I think we can really sort of... um, realize the seaweed opportunity in its highest and best use. And that means the farmers are getting paid uh, the, the best they can, the, the market can offer them for their product. And really their story, I think, is, is one of our greatest marketing assets is uh, Nick, Nick and Alf and Lexa. Um, Lexa is married to Alf. She's our hatchery manager there. Um, these people, their story, that's what our consumers want to connect with, a lot of them anyway. And I think learning about seaweed through their eyes is is really the way uh, that we can realize a premium. And if people know Nick and Alf and Lexa and Stephanie, you know, th- these families, I think that positions them to, to have more loyalty to their farms and Blue Evolution's brand, of course, but we're just the broker of that relationship between, you know, Nick and Stephanie, uh, husband and wife owners of, of, of their farm, and whoever's eating their delicious uh, kelp. Right, right. Well, I guess, you know, the big question here is, so you have, so it seems as though the supply side of things is becoming apparent, right? Like you have, you have a plan, it's replicable, you have a, a template, so to speak. But, you know, the big question here from, from my perspective is the, you know, what's the demand, right? And you, you touched upon it briefly and mentioned, you know, the marketing side of things is, you know, here in the United States, other than you know some other some small populations, obviously Hawaii being one of them, um, and up here on the East Coast a little bit, there there's a there is a demand for seaweed and kelp, right? And it's just I think it stems culturally from from the from the standpoint of people here in the United States, but you know places like Asia, it's it's way more prevalent, right? It's just something that's embedded in their culture. Um, so, how have you gone about really creating a market? In, in a product that's marketable because, you know, I definitely want to touch on the fact that you guys are, are creating uh, pasta out of this, right. As a way in a, in a form to then bring seaweed from a, you know, a, a crop to a product. Right. So what, what have you guys kind of done to go about that? Yeah. Well, I went at this all backwards. I, I figured out how to grow something before I could figure out if I could sell it. <laughs> so, so the sea lettuce was like, man, so hard to just figure out, you know, how to grow 
consistently. And then right. I, I was like, man, I, I, there's nobody who knows what this is. It, it's not really a product in the, in the marketplace that there's a, a comp for when you get specific about seaweed varieties. And they're very different. I mean, people mm-hmm. say seaweed's the new kale. No, it's the new vegetables. There are thousands of species, hundreds, I mean, maybe tens of thousands. I kind of got to this moment where it's like, man, am I going to try and sell this wholesale? And in what form? I got to process it and I got to tell people why they should eat it. <laughs> and the wife of the seaweed scientist we work with in Baja was a food engineer. So she, we gave her a contract and just said, can you make some sort of prototypes out of this? Because she designed products. Uh, um, uh, with seafood, like waste, she would make a sausage and she knew how to innovate, uh, with, with, okay. and she's married to a seaweed farm. So she made all these delicious <laughs> sauces and invited us over to try them at dinner. And they were really good. The seaweed again is very mild. So I had an epiphany at the table there of like, I need to build a brand. I need to tell this story. I need to take it all the way to the consumer. I can't just farm it. And that's when I really got serious about the consumer uh, uh, products. And basically with pasta, we just, we wanted to break seaweed out of sort of a, a, a knockoff of an Asian form of seaweed, right? We wanted to put it into a product that was familiar and that people would eat and not think, wow, okay, seaweed, this is way outside of my uh, comfort zone. It, it is still seaweed and pasta, which people, a lot of people find weird, but it's very mild. It's not what you'd expect. It's not like this uh, oceany sort of low tide bomb. It's really good. It's very mm. savory. It's just a, a more substantial pasta that sort of sits in your stomach. Uh, it, it keeps you fuller longer is the way I would put it. And it's got great nutrients, iodine, magnesium, manganese, iron. Uh, so it gives you some nice added nutritional benefits compared to your traditional pasta. Yeah, so, for sure. Okay, but also people are con- more concerned about health and wellness. So if you're going to buy pasta, why not get pasta with more iodine, manganese, uh, uh, magnesium, iron, uh, you know, omega-3s, um, these really cool bioactive compounds that are in there. Why not? You know, let's everybody's striving for, for better uh, nutrition as a foundation of all your health, whether it's infection or or stress or whatever. This this is this is a superfood. And we've just come out with four popcorn flavors. Uh, oh, no way. We've got um, uh, organic now that our seaweed farm is organic, organic uh, seaweed flavored popcorn. We got uh, salt and vinegar. We got uh, toasted sesame, spicy citrus. Uh, and um, turmeric ginger, and you can see the seaweed is is really there. Interesting. We're also launching. We were all the kelp we were growing up until March was for restaurants and, and high end catering. You know, like uh, in a company's uh, cafeteria, one of these big corporate campuses. Mm-hmm. We were getting a lot of traction there, and then that market evaporated. So very quickly, pivoting with that, we, we've been selling a little bit of dried sort of. Um, we don't have the ability to dry much. So we sell a little bit of dried seaweed on our website. But um, what we had been selling was a blanched frozen kombu and wakame, sugar kelp and ribbon kelp. And we we had to pivot that into retail. So right now we're selling that really only in Portland through Imperfect Foods. And it's this wholesale format. It's a two-pound bag of whole leaf frozen kelp. It's really not designed for that. 
But in a little while, I would say by the end of August, we intend to launch a pair of seaweed purees, kombu and wakame. Now, that, that sounds kind of unextraordinary, but I really think this is a, a killer ingredient. And because dried seaweed is really intense flavor, you're oxidizing it, usually subjecting it to heat, and it just becomes super intense flavor-wise. And that's good as a, as a seasoning. But when you just, like, we harvest it and blanch it right out of the water and then freeze it. And it's this beautiful green product. Usually they blanch seaweed before they dry it. But as a frozen product, which we turn into a puree, um, it, it becomes, it's a lot more mild. It's like a leafy green with a very light ocean background note. Not that sulfury, intense seaweedy smell. So when you put this into your recipes, it basically just enhances flavor and gives you that sense of fullness. So instead of saying, here's dried seaweed, which when you use it, it's really going to slot you into a narrower set of recipes. I've been putting this in everything. In the pasta last night, I did a pesto. I basically just take a tablespoon for each person eating and add that to the pesto. Or I put it in salad dressings. You want to eat a salad that eats like a meal? Like for lunch, that gets you through to dinner, just put a little bit of this kombu puree into your salad dressing. We even make a, a, a cheese or carrot cake and brownies with these, and it just helps with the texture. It doesn't taste like seaweed. It just makes them nice and moist, and it makes the chocolate or the carrot flavor pop more. And I think this is a big deal. It's kind of a, it's kind of a complex sell, but imagine just more flavor. And feeling fuller having eaten less food and then having more time until you get hungry again. It's the, it's a pretty mind-blowing experience when you cook with this puree for a couple weeks. And, and we try and do, we're, we're doing a video series now called The Seven Days of Seaweed. And basically, I think people should eat a, a little bit of seaweed every day, not a lot of seaweed occasionally. It's very, it's got a lot of good minerals that are best consumed on a daily basis, like a multivitamin. So here's an ingredient that's not going to be this intense flavor skew. It's just going to be a flavor enhancer that allows you to feel more full eating less. And your iodine, you, we're going to get you, you know, with a tablespoon, you're going to be over your RDA uh, requirement for iodine um, in, in one meal. And that's going to be important for dealing with stress and your metabolism. Um, and and it's really iodine is critical for pregnant and nursing mothers. Uh, they have a much higher requirement than than the average population. So it's it, it has all of these nutritional benefits. But I think you know for flavor to get your other ingredients to stand out better, especially for plant based. Uh, the, the shift towards plant-based, you know, what's the fear for someone giving up meat? I'm not going to feel satisfied. I don't get that steak, right? But with seaweed in there, um, you can have a plant-based meal that really you're like looking at, you know, what's left on your plate saying, man, I, I feel full. And it takes a few tries to do this. If you do it for, for two weeks, you really start to notice, man, I am eating less. I'm not as hungry. and um, I don't, I don't know what's going on myself because COVID's changed a lot. I'm a lot more active taking care of my son, but I've lost a lot of weight eating seaweed every, every day. I can't, I can't claim that it's because I'm eating the seaweed, but I do feel like I have a lot of energy. 
and I do feel like uh, 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 my meals are different. Just just my hunger cycles are are on a different sort of rhythm and a and a and, and a healthier one. That's anecdotal, but I'm I'm being sincere. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm getting my iodine dose um, every day, and I'm getting. Uh, you know, good B vitamins, uh, potassium, all these other things. Minerals, you know, we talk about vitamins a lot. Minerals, um, and yeah, and on land, they're hard to hard to source. I mean, iodine uh, is in the soil volcanically in, in different places, but um, the more you farm it, it's sort of a finite resource. In the ocean, that iodine content is consistent. And this this is true for all minerals. Minerals leach out of soil, but they're not they don't vary in the ocean. I mean, they vary, you know, over the yearly cycle, but it's a constant supply of essentially minerals and nutrients in the ocean. So while you see a decline in mineral and overall nutrient uh, uh, content in a lot of terrestrial plant products, vegetables and fruit, you know, on, on land that's been over, over farmed in the ocean, you're not going to experience that. We're not, we're not seeing a trend, a downward trend of nutrient density in, in ocean crops. So that's, that's really important. It's hard to get, if you're a vegan, it's hard to get enough iodine. It's hard to get enough B vitamins. Uh, iron's a challenge, obviously. This is a really a, a, a gap that seaweed can, can help fill. And as people who aren't vegan try to do more plant-based, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, but I'm way more plant-based than I used to be. And, um, I mistakes less when I cook with seaweed. I'll put it that way. Like I don't, I don't, I don't covet them <laughs> as much as I did. And it's true. I don't know how to. It's hard to really until you try. It's difficult to uh, appreciate what that subtle flavor enhancing and, and high satiety effect is. But it's it's potent. It's powerful in my experience. Right. Well, it certainly sounds like a very versatile product in, in, in crop in general. I mean, it not only grows, it, it grows in a variety of different places, a variety of different species. It truly sounds like it could really be the next, I mean, you know, the next kale, right? It's not, like you said, it, there's so many different species, but it's 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 a superfood, right? It's It's something that can be put in so many different applications, whether it's you know, a food or a, you know, a, being used as a mineral or a vitamin and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, kind of bringing the ship into port and, and kind of taking it back to really where you started with it. Was there a moment in time do you, where you think, or maybe it was a place or a situation that kind of set you on the course that you're on today? And then also, you know, last but not least, what, what is kind of the ocean meant to you, you know, throughout this whole process of, of creating the, of blue evolution? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to, I mean, there were, there were several epiphanies along the way. Mm, right? I'm sure. Um, but I think I, I went, to Connecticut with Charlie, and I went to a high school there in Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut, called mm-hmm. Bridgeport Aquaculture High School. It is what I was doing with those high school kids in Mexico, but it's a $30 million uh, facility where they're growing 30 different species. These are juniors and seniors. If they qualify, get good grades, their they're, they're, uh, afternoons are at this campus, and they're all growing you know, tilapia and, uh, you know, mussels and, and seaweeds. Right. And they're selling them. Uh, they have a farmer's market for 
you know, seaweed and, and all these other seafood products. They have a television studio. It was amazing. Oh, no way. <laughs> but there was this one Israeli uh, seaweed expert, and he said, you know, in my religion, he's Jewish, he said, um, God is light. And I was drawn to seaweed because seaweed is essentially like the most uh, uh, fundamental manifestation of taking the light and and turning it into something virtuous, right? Like the, mm. the application of it. And that, that had a pretty profound effect on me because I was really interested in sustainability and the environment. And it was like, wow, there's a purity to seaweed, right? So that one line cited for me put it into relief of like, okay, photosynthesis, this thing that we still don't fully understand scientifically is such a powerful form of magic. And that really got me off the fauna tip, you know, like I just didn't, I couldn't see fish and, and mussels and oysters and shrimp anymore. It was all about the flora, right? Interesting. I'm not even sure that's right. But, and, and so that, that was a major inflection point for me. Why am I right. doing with these, or, these troublesome fauna? When I could be, you know, just basically, I, I don't have to keep them alive. I just have to give them the conditions to grow. Mm. Fish and shrimp, these things always want to die. They get sick. <laughs> yep. A few of these problems, but it's just, it's so such an ancient life form. And it's been so successful through so many different, you know, super volcanoes and asteroid hits and climate change. It's it has a lot to teach us in this time of uh, of turbulence and flux and and crisis. It's a it's resilience in physical form. So and it's ready to produce. Right. The other thing I realized is, man, the ocean is most of our planet. Um, we need more food. We need more materials. We need uh, substitutes for petroleum based products. You know, a lot of our food is based on nitrogen fertilized you know chemically fertilized crops which is actually derived from natural gas extraction so even your you know land crops a lot of that requires uh, a, a, a petrochemical feedstock but the ocean is ready to produce without those inputs no fresh water nowhere mm. on the land you know fertilizer not required and space that you're not having, you know, you want to grow a bunch of soy to supply protein to the next billion people. Okay. But you're going to have to find space for it. You need water, you need fertilizer. You might cut right. down some Amazon rainforest for your, you know, 10,000 square mile new uh, soy farming zone in the ocean. Seaweed has an impact. You can screw it up and do damage, but just on sort of fundamentally, that's a lot less likely if you care and design your your production properly. Mm -hmm. um, and it can actually have incredible benefits to the ocean. I mean, our farm in Mexico, we're lowering the pH in that water in, in our tanks. That we get a full point higher going out as to what we what came in. So mm -hmm. ocean deacidification it creates habitat. Uh, the farms up in Alaska, we see huge amounts of organisms using that as shelter. You know, juvenile organisms. Yeah, I'm sure that that that. Uh, these fishermen will go and fish for after they've harvested their seaweed. So right. it, it has very little um, sort of trade-offs ecologically on, on the one hand, and it has a lot of ecological benefits. And I think net 
done properly, the net effect to the ecosystem can be positive. So mm. that, that's the purity that this, you know, seaweed is light, is God. That comment sort of connected for me is that, wow, we can really just use seawater and sunlight to produce even it's it's going to be tough, but fuel. And certainly right. bioplastics. I know if we're going to do bioplastics, seaweed is the feedstock. Why use land for food production? Why why displace that to make bioplastics when the ocean you're not you're not displacing uh, food production? It can produce food and bioplastics and theoretically uh, uh, biofuel amounts uh, you know volumes without without significant damage or with a lot less impact than if you tried to do that in a terrestrial setting. Right. And I'll just say for me, the ocean, you know, we, seaweed is one of the earliest multicellular life forms. And of course we came from the ocean. We actually almost went extinct during an ice age mm -hmm. until we got to the ocean and found all of the nutrients foraging the coastal zone. We actually were down to 165 uh, females of, uh, of uh, breeding age in our human mm -hmm. population. We went to a bottleneck, and then we went to the coast near Cape Town in South Africa and started foraging bivalves and fish and seaweed, according to these uh, anthropologists, and then our brains exploded in size because we had all this DHA and, and, and all of the uh, uh, minerals to support a significant increase in size in our brain. And then right. we took over the planet very quickly. It's like we went down <laughs> to 165, we found the ocean, and then the rest Now we're 8 billion. <laughs> right. So now, now that humanity is dealing with some stuff, to me, and this precedes COVID, you know, climate change, fisheries decline, what's happening in the ocean. It was like, we need to go back to the ocean. And that's why my company is called Blue Evolution. In mm. our human evolution, we came from the ocean, we were saved by the ocean, and we need to go back to the ocean now for the answers of, of what to do next. So um, it's been extremely fulfilling as a career to have an excuse to be by the ocean and connected to the ocean, connected to the people who, who, whose life is the ocean, um, and to really have a lever to pull on here, uh, in so many levers, really, uh, to create this livable, uh, thriving future. And so I'm, an, I'm, I'm really concerned about climate change and, and COVID, what's happening sort of... Uh, uh, with the mood of the world. And I think seaweed has, and the ocean has so much to offer us in terms of inspiration, hope, and, and real, physical, tangible uh, 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 benefits that address really so many of the challenges uh, that, we're, that we're dealing with today, including nutri nutrients, right? Like food. Mm -hmm. It's not just like how many pounds. It's like, well, what's in it? And seaweed is just beautiful in terms of the the the... Uh, roles that can play in, in nutritional security as opposed to just like calories. We right. want a balanced diet, right? Well, seaweed's ready to, to, to do some heavy lifting really for billions of people. So we got to get it here in the United States. We got to make this global. It shouldn't just be sort of in East Asia. I, I think it wants to go, you know, expand around the world. It has to be done right. Mm -hmm. um, but I really see this century uh, as the um, uh, the period when we start to get serious about seaweed, and I think in ten years 
you'll see it doing some things that uh, I hope you surprise even me because it, it's just gonna it's gonna become a really uh, big part of our lives. I think it's only a big part of our lives in ways we don't understand. Like all the petri dishes in the world, that agar is from mm-hmm. seaweed. That's pretty important right now. Is you know groups are working towards um, uh, you know uh, vaccines and remedies and all that stuff. Um, it's in you know our toothpaste and so many of our cosmetics, but. Just like oil is right now in too many places of our world uh, and our our individual lives, I think seaweed is going to start picking up pieces of, uh, you know, those functions within our lives in in new and exciting ways. And, you know, that's a gift from the sea, uh, from these seaweeds. They're givers. They're ready to to do uh, good work with us and for us. And, And... I hope you and your listeners will will follow this journey because it's pretty it's pretty fun, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it 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 sounds it, and and you know what the the uh, you can tell you're so passionate about you know solving this problem and getting involved and just the story behind Blue Evolution is inspiring, and you can just hear from the inflection in your voice and and the way you talk about you know something as simple as seaweed, and it's not simple, right? There's so much more to think about, and so many ways you can go ahead and market it and produce it, and and how it affects you know communities around the world. And it was just a real pleasure to talk talk to you about it. So, you know, how can people get involved in Blue Evolution? How can people get, you know, their hands on some pasta and, and where can they go and view your content? Yeah, I, we are nationally distributed. Um, so you can go to our website and enter your uh, pastas on Amazon. We're doing so many things in our business. We want, we got to get around to telling the story. Uh, but you can see on our website, we have a video about our farms and Matt. Alaska and, and Mexico and our blog has a bunch of recipes some posts from me and, and uh, other folks that we're connected with and and so you'll see Twitter, Instagram, Facebook uh, uh, forgive me <laughs> um, uh, you know a whole bunch of stories that go down to our supply chain and, and you know talk about how chefs are using it you know the whole spectrum from producing little seedlings you know that we have microscope shots of to some chef turning it into this delicious vegan breakfast hash uh and everything in between so we really hope people will come to the website and follow us on social because um we we have a lot to tell we're just trying to keep up with the (laughs) production of the content um relative to to what that content is uh, is about keeps us busy, but we're we're working to squeeze it through the keyhole of all this social media and 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 get people excited. I mean, come see what seaweed farming's like and uh, harvest, hatchery, processing, cuisine. It's a whole world waiting to be explored. And yeah, awesome. Well, hey, Bo, man, it was great to you know catch up with you and learn all about Blue Evolution. And um, for those that are listening, go ahead and give these guys a follow and learn all about you know what they have going on because it's certainly impressive. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Right on, Zach. Well, keep doing what you're doing, turning people onto the ocean, and uh, uh, we will. I think it's these these ocean lovers that uh, have a lot to to contribute to again this this livable future yeah we'll uh we'll be in touch hopefully in the near future sounds good take care zach thank you 
Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Along the Keel. It was a real pleasure talking with Bo to learn all about how Blue Evolution is really in some way changing the way we think about our current food system. Kelp is an amazing product, an amazing crop, and really has so many ecosystem services that it's kind of a no-brainer to, to start consuming it, to start eating it, making it different products. And whether it be food-based or medical-based or what have you, there's a lot of different ways to consume kelp, and I just think it's an amazing product. So with that, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of the show. Please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. They're super important. They help us grow and get better, as well as get to hear about what you guys think about the show. So leave a review. Be super helpful. Follow us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook. And don't forget to go over to Bo's page, Blue Evolution, and check it out. Make sure you give him a follow. Send him a DM. Tell him that Zach sent you. And uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode. But before I go, make sure to work hard, do good, and be incredible. Thanks, and have a great day.